Hello everyone and welcome to the first episode of Unsound on Sound, the podcast where we are unsound on the subject of sound. I'm your host, uh, James Lowry. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this whole uh, situation of this podcast you're listening to now. Uh, I had been talking to uh, Matthew Fava over at the CMC um, about doing a podcast uh, on the subject of uh, new music uh, in the loosest sense of the term, uh, but not that loose. You know what I'm talking about when I say new music. Talking about contemporary classical music and sound art and experimental music and really whatever else I want to talk about here. But just an atmosphere to do that in a relaxed way where, you know, we don't worry too much about uh, fact checking or uh, anything really. Uh, But uh, of course, with this whole COVID situation, I decided to put it on pause, you know, because I was kind of looking to do a nice sounding podcast, maybe with some sweet post-production. But I decided, you know what, who cares? I'm going to do it anyways. So, I've been phoning up some of my friends in the world of new music and asking them to discuss uh, any piece of music that they feel they'll have something to talk about. And uh, first up on the docket is uh, Becca Sims. A fantastic Toronto-based composer uh, talking about Romatelli's Professor Bad Trip, Lesson 2. Fantastic Toronto-based composer uh, talking about Romatelli's Professor Bad Trip, Lesson 2. Uh, which we will link to in the show notes. Now, you don't have to listen to this this piece before listening to this podcast, but I think probably you will enjoy it more if you do. And it's a pretty sweet piece. That's why we chose it. And, you know, if you're, if you're uh, maybe a non-new music person listening to this, a good chance to uh, get exposed to some new stuff and and see what you like. But before I start the interview, I'm just going to play a minute of it so you can just get a little taste. Okay, well, without further ado, let's get on to the interview. Professor Bad Trip, Lesson 2. Thank you. 
so I'm I'm here with Becca Sims to discuss Romatelli's Professor Bad Trip, uh, Lesson Two, which was written between 1998 and 1999. Uh, the first question I have here uh, written down is is sort of a biographical question for you, which is. Uh, uh, when you visit your family, do you ever feel like you're playing The Sims? Oh my god. Is that like as a pun on my last name? Uh, okay, so here's a better question. Uh, I, there's something about this piece, Professor Bad Trip that I think is immediately appealing about it, which is the name. You hear the name Professor Badger, and especially to me, the fact that he names them Lesson 1, Lesson 2, Lesson 3, I think that's, you just go, ooh, I want to hear this. Professor Badger is a great name because you get this sort of, what I think is, is sort of at the core of the piece, this um, professor, you've got that sort of uh, very nerdy, detailed uh, contemporary music writing thing, and then you have this bad trip angle to it, which is which is the extent to which it is getting quite psychedelic and and off the rails. And mm -hmm. I was just wondering to start with, where do you situate this between the world of sort of uh, academic contemporary classical music and uh, psychedelic freakout? Well, my favorite thing about this series of pieces is that it's really close to the middle. And I think in some ways I would say that it leans even like a little bit more towards psychedelic freakout. But I don't think that somebody could create these types of pieces and structures without sort of like the requisite um, educational background. You know, it is it is nerdy in the sense that the like the harmonic materials, the rhythmic writing especially, and the textures that are created are really, really specific. And so, I mean, it's integral. It, you know, you can't remove that from the psychedelia. Um, one thing that I noticed actually listening to this for the first time in about a year or so is that it, it's actually a lot less patient than I had remembered. And I know like a lot of... Um, a lot of stuff that comes out in this vein now tends to be a little bit more drone-like or really sort of dwelling in these psychedelic sounds and, and timbres. But there, there's sort of more of like a, a, a quick, quick, like a spectral quickness in the way that he passes through the materials and, and things end up in new sections actually pretty often. And I feel like that's more in line with pieces by like um, Mariah or Grise and that sort of like first wave of spectralism. So like that's obviously part of of the puzzle that like, you can't ignore but I mean when you're not looking at the score it's way easier to just be like this is this is just like a, a pure piece of psychedelia for sure I was the first time I encountered this uh, a few years ago uh, I gave it a listen maybe even on your recommendation and I found it yeah, a little bit up its own butt, but this time <laughs> I went out and I listened to it at night um, in Belleville, just wandering the streets and the stars and just blasting it on my quite good headphones here. And I was just, this This rules. This is, this is awesome. I think you're right that 
there is this aspect of this piece where you look at it from a different angle uh, and it could either be just psychedelic freak out or it could be a, a very uh, kind of intellectual exercise. And I think that, as you say, that, that positioning of it right in the middle and, and hitting you one way or another is such a good metaphor for, for what it feels like often to be uh, a millennial uh, <laughs> writing contemporary music. Oh, we're being pulled at in all directions as millennial listeners. So, you know, we don't have those sort of factions of listening that I think were really common in, in previous generational cohorts. Um, we weren't reliant on physical media to determine what we could listen to. You know, we sort of had this unfettered access to online listening. And I know as, as a listener and as a composer, I have no idea what to do with my own musical background. I wish that I had the choice between two things. You know, Ramatelli is using like, psych like really heavy sort of psychedelic music and concert music. If, if I could be limited to just like combining two things, that would be great. I think as you know, he was a Gen Xer. As millennials, it's just kind of like, well, I like hip hop and I like metal and I like folk and that's and and more. You know, that that's just the popular music side. Like, how am I going to integrate what is already sort of unintegratable, and then add concert music into the mix? It just seems like an impossible problem. Yeah, I will say that this music to me did does sound a little ahead of the curve, like. I don't even mean in the world of contemporary music, but it's interesting to think that this came out and was being written before, like, OK Computer was released. It feels in a weird way, kind of post... Uh, mm -hmm. It sounds like post-Pitchfork music, if you know what I mean. <laughs> well, I mean, Pitchfork is now post-Pitchfork. It's not the same as it was in this era you know what I mean it's sort of adapted to the post-genre landscape that we live in right now I mean like th it, it, this is very predictive because in a way it is sort of it, obviously it's a combination of two elements but in some ways it's kind of maybe aiming to be post-genre post-concert music in a way post this idea that you have to sit in one camp and I mean like look at the biggest pop star on the planet right now is, is Billie Eilish who I think is like at least aesthetically speaking you know within that post-genre camp herself, even though it's mostly, like, visual aesthetics. Uh, but I think I think we're there now as, like, a major cultural movement. And, you know, this piece is 20 years old. So it's pretty To bring it back to the title for a second, I, I'm interested in the word lesson. Like, he calls these pieces Lesson 1, Lesson 2, Lesson 3, which is fun. But do you have <laughs> any idea of what, is being taught and what is being learned and and who's doing the learning here ah uh, i don't i definitely don't have any idea and uh like many peter's edition scores from this era there's no program note <laughs> about exactly um what the composer wants to convey to the audience or to us who are reading the score as uh as nerdy little music lovers ourselves um, I think in the term, in terms of like a trip, I know that with some drugs, there's like this recommendation that you do them with somebody who has experience in it. You know, you have somebody who's kind of like a guide for the first yeah. time, especially with psychedelics, with LSD and mushrooms. Uh, you, you don't want to be in a room full of amateurs necessarily. You want somebody who knows what to expect. And, you know, if somebody's having a bad trip, maybe how to bring you 
back from that. So I'm I'm thinking the title mostly comes from perhaps like this play on drug culture. Um, and as listeners, maybe I certainly think that the listeners are intended to be the ones receiving the lesson. But beyond yeah. that, I'm not I'm not so sure. I I don't know if this is related, but I was thinking about how influenced this is by the sounds of the studio. Like, uh, I was talking to Andrew Noseworthy. Um, Love. And I'll, and I will have a little drop here. Can Sam follow your nose sound, which I've decided is going to drop into the podcast whenever I mention Andrew Noseworthy. <laughs> Uh, but uh, I was talking to Andrew Noseworthy about uh, Tim Brady's uh, Desir, uh, Electric Guitar Concerto. And that, to me, really sounds like it's motivated by the sounds of people playing uh, electric guitar and, and other rock instruments live. This one seems to be very caught up in the sounds uh, created from studio recordings of, of folks like, you know, Pink Floyd and beyond that. And I think as the pieces go on, he develops more and more, from lesson one to lesson three, more and more complex ways to take those studio sounds and put them into the instruments. Because our Bad Trip Lesson 1 is making use of live electronics. And um, numbers 2 and 3, they don't really... They, they sort of do, depending on your definition of uh, live electronics. But I, I do think there's some ways where he, he is sort of teaching himself to recreate some of these sounds, perhaps. And, and as, as I've said... Wild conjecture, but there you go. <laughs> well, as somebody who's um, been making like a quite a concerted effort to get into the studio more and more with my pieces, uh, it's it's really stood out to me on this listen how reliant the recording balance and sounds are on the fact that it is a studio recording. Um, I have heard this piece live and they're, they're different experiences, man. I mean, they're always different experiences, but, um, to me, the, the piece, the definitive way for this piece to exist is, is as a recording with the help of the studio rather than as like a live interpretation. And I think for some people that might be considered a little bit unfortunate, but I think if you're really in love with like this, um, uh, universal sort of reverb drench on every instrument and this perfect balance where you know you can somehow hear the flute over an electric guitar then the studio is kind of the only way to really make that happen and I, I wrote a piece with the exact same instrumentation as this piece and live I mean so many things are buried and and I'm, I'm a person who often uses like a lot a lot of details in my works and they just they just didn't come out but the studio recording Oh boy, it's like it's a whole another world altogether. And I think with this piece, it's it's sort of an example of of if when people come come from or want to sort of reference this popular music tradition that is very, you know, it's all recorded in a studio. Um, what does that mean about what the piece is? Like, w which version of the piece is true? Is it a piece of concert music successful if its most true realization is from a studio recording? Yeah, 
I, uh, and the name of your piece with the same instrumentation is... Granitic. Oh, is that how you pronounce it? Oh, I see. I've been pronouncing it wrong. Well, well, I might, I might be a... pronouncing it wrong, too. Who knows? <laughs> you can't. You can only pronounce it correctly. It's your damn piece. Maybe it's we'll the way, drop it's... <laughs> it's the way that Gary Kalesha pronounces it, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with it. Yeah, maybe I'll drop in, I don't know, a 30-second sample of that here just for kicks as well. Sure, make um, sure it's not a part that sounds too much like this, uh, like Professor <laughs> Ictus Ensemble playing Professor Badtrip. I believe the album is just called Professor Badtrip. Is so good. I've been <laughs> listening to it. It's got this precision to it, and you say that studio balance where there is this level of precision, and these are these are fairly virtuosic parts, and and that's sort of the fun thing about contemporary music. I think this can be kind of a little bit taboo to say. But there's something so fun about when uh, there's an ensemble playing a piece of difficult contemporary music pretty much perfectly that just the, the, there's a certain magic there where every single idea that the composer put down on the page and probably a bunch uh, he or she did not even uh, intend just really can can pop off in a wonderful way and i think this recording is an example of that oh i think we value the uh, when we can identify mastery in a performance i think that's hugely appealing to an audience i think especially when it goes to the to the level where even um like a casual audience can see that the or hear that the players are just like really kicking ass like that is that is magical i mean that's why performers practice for hours every day so that they can give us the experience of seeing the mastery. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the score, uh, missing things. Uh, so you listen to professor bad trip lesson two. One of the immediate things that jump out are these two long, uh, electric cello solos, mm -hmm. which I must imagine have been, uh, somewhat of an influence on you with Forever Dark and all that, your uh, electric cello concerto. Uh, but they're not written in the score. I was looking. <laughs> it just says cello cadenza here. And the, the cadenza is very long in that ictus recording. 
are, are is that player just uh, just going for it, uh, or or what? Do you know? I I, I don't know. Um, I know that in the recording that I listened to, that the first cadenza is very long, and then the second cadenza is actually quite short, and it's something that I. I found a little disorienting, to be honest, but not in like the good psychedelic way. Um, the cello cadenza not being um, notated out is probably like the closest thing to like a classical touch that this this piece has. Um, but it's it's absolutely wild that that he would put such an integral part of the piece totally in somebody else's hands. And I don't know everything if this... else is so notated to the out the wazoo absolutely and when you look at a composer's score you can kind of see what their thoughts about control are right like you can kind of see how Mm. attached or not attached they are to the idea of um musical input musical decision making from people outside of themselves so like if you're looking at a, a score that is just text or is mostly graphics you can say okay that composer is probably pretty open to like a wide variety of interpretations when you see a score like professor Badtrip, you're just like okay this person is looking for something really specific and so when you contrast that to this you know this is a huge chunk of the piece like formally speaking like that's a, a percentage wise that's a lot of music that he didn't write that's that's part of the overall work you know so i don't know if he specifically wrote this for ictus they're a french ensemble and i know he worked a lot in france so it's possible that he knew the cellist and was like this is for you have fun you know like that's that to me would be the most realistic um scenario but it is it it is shocking because i had forgotten that it wasn't notated and i was listening and looking at the score and just being like what what is happening like why isn't this here I almost wonder uh, if it's actually in the cello part, but I will say the language of it, it sounds very different from the rest of the piece. It sounds like it's coming from a different brain uh, than the rest of the piece. I mean, what it has in common is it, it has, I don't know what, this is the other thing too. You mentioned that like, depending on your definition of live electronics, that um, this lesson also has a live electronics. It sounds like it has guitar pedals. Yeah. Like it sound it sounds like there's a flanger, like it sounds like it has those same types of of sort of tone alterations that the guitar does, but there's nothing specified in the score ab- about that, about how these effects are created. Um so it, it Tamberly, I think there's a connection to the rest of the piece. Um there's a lot of sol ponticello playing, there's harmonics which are used a lot in the string writing in the piece. Um but there's it's like the rhythmic language and the phrasing and the timing, like those things all do feel different. And so if it was exactly written up by Ramicelli, then we look foolish, foolish, but I do, it does sound like it is a different brain. And I mean like this idea of a different brain taking over in the middle of something and then like sort of weaving its way back for another like little reprieve. Like that's, that's a trippy concept in and of itself. Is there any moments in this piece you would like to speak? talk about um one thing that i love about all of the professor bad trips is how strong the openings are like for me with each of them i think the the openings are probably my favorite parts of the pieces um and for lesson two 
it's it's the kazoo oh my god like <laughs> who who knew that a kazoo could sound so trippy and then likewise when the harmonica is is in there later and this is part of why i like um listening to pieces without a score well first of all it's closer to the concert experience because you're obviously not in the concert with a big score in your lap unless you're a real asshole um but you don't know what's happening you don't understand what you're hearing so like i remember the first time that i heard this and there's like there's some parts too where the um, i think the flutist is is singing at the same time as she's playing i i listened to this as a younger composer as someone who didn't have like sort of a a catalog of all the different types of possible sounds it could possibly use um i I remember hearing this and just being like really having a lot of questions more than answers about what I was hearing. And so it's hard to really recreate that now that I know what's happening. But I, there's so much magic in those really simple timbre choices in the opening, this, especially the kazoo. I can't get over it. Like, I'm usually not shy about borrowing and taking um, timbres and sounds from other pieces that I really like. But for some reason, I find that opening and the the kazoo especially and the harmonica later to be kind of untouchable because for me they are just they are professor bad trip lesson two and that's the end of it and like if i hear that again like my mind will just be immediately brought to this piece yeah i think something interesting about this piece with the whole concept of our little sound catalog as contemporary composers is when you listen to it, you think this must be using all kinds of wild contemporary extended techniques. But you look at the score, it's not really, there isn't anything in there that you wouldn't uh, know what it meant pretty much just for looking at the notation if, if you're sort of used to looking at contemporary scores. So much of that trippiness and that strangeness comes from that orchestration and the instrumentation more than making people play their instruments in various outlandish ways. Absolutely. And and that's sort of, um, to me, that's like a little bit of bad news, really, because like if I want to have, because I, I love trippy music, I love psychedelia. If I want to have that in, in a piece for string quartet, then I have a lot more work cut out for me than if I have an instrumentation that includes like you know electric bass and electric guitar that with big pedal boards and I ran into this sort of concept when writing granitic and it was just it was so easy for me to get the types of sounds mm-hmm. that I wanted and it was just like it felt like a luxury and then you move on to you know maybe like a duo piece or something for just a couple of instruments that don't have the same capabilities without you know adding adding a rig or doing special sounds and you're just like man the instrumentation has a huge impact on this and it's just it's unavoidable especially with the guitar and bass that you have access to sounds that you don't have otherwise and it's yeah to me that's it's sad (laughs) because i i want my pieces to have um sort of that that bite to them that's just a lot harder to come by um acoustically in my opinion yeah for me the moment in this piece that I remember, and maybe this makes me a softie, is is after our <laughs> long uh, cello cadenza, the first one, you just mm-hmm. get these really nice chords that are supported by uh, the bass playing uh, either a root or something very pleasant in the bass line. And then that whole second section, they he, he just adds more on more to this sort of pretty traditional sort of rock 
uh, four chord thing that he's doing. But it, it's to me that that's that's a wonderful moment. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I'm looking at it right here. It's um, it's like it's labeled as Roman numeral two. Yes, like it's, like the, it's like the second section. You know. Yeah. I find the sense of tension and release in this piece really exciting in general. Like after stuff gets really intense and hazy and, and distorted, you get these moments of, of clarity that are just like so welcome to your ear. And this is a great example after the first cadenza. After the second cadenza as well, you get into like a really simple rhythmic language with a descending line in the piano. Uh, in my opinion, I think the second time around, it, it goes away a little too quickly and, and goes back into chaos. Um, and maybe, you know, I'm getting older and I'm getting more curmudgeon-y, but in general, like these these sections where you have really clear, like these um, were in 4-4 four, four, and you just like quarter note, half note, quarter note. Like I... I apparently love this shit now. Like I used to always want more and more rhythmic com complexity and, and to have like the sense of meter and time um, obscured in some way. But when it's obscured for a long time and then you come to these moments, it's just, oh my God, I just, I want to luxuriate in them for, for, for forever. And sometimes it's sort of snatched away from us in this piece. Although considering the, the cheeky nature of it, I'm sure that was probably intended, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think two rhythmically complex musical passages are never going to sound as different as any musically kind of rhythmically complex passage does compared to one that has a, a regular uh, a beat. So I, I, I agree that I think that you, you can't help but want, want to make use of that. Or at least I can't help but want to make use of those, those two extremes in a in a piece of music i've been doing it more now i feel i feel a lot more comfortable with it um the other thing that i've you know, i don't know why i've been afraid of it um in the last little while is this um this idea of just like direct repetition of a of, of a fairly substantial chunk of material and the section um that I'm, that's right before the cello cadenza does it has a one two three like a four bar phrase that it repeats three times verbatim and it's just so good like it's you you want it's it's a good enough chunk that you want it again and like why would you just not do that why would you ignore it like because of pressure to always develop or always you know have some type of variation to your material like it's just such nonsense like in the popular music world it's like ba really based off of repetition and patterns and I feel like outside of of music that's influenced by minimalism you don't really see this type of verbatim repetition so much but the um the three repetitions before uh like up leading up to measure 62 are just like oh they're so rocking like it, it's a moment where you kind of feel like you're maybe at like a weird prog rock show or something you know yeah for sure and, and i think he balances these things as you say that he's still keeping you a little discombobulated, but I think he balances these these elements in lesson two and three quite well. I find a, the first one gets stuck in the sort of jazz freak out uh, mode for <laughs> a little too long for my tastes, but I Do you mean like all of the, uh, the scalar runs and stuff that are just kind of like going in an all direction and changing their rhythmic language really commonly and it's just it's just a lot it's just a lot of like it's cacophonous yeah which i think is 
fine, but I do think that he makes a use of the fact that these are notated out in uh, a better way in in lesson two and three. So you know, uh, maybe he learned something. Uh, <laughs> well, he was a young composer. You know, he he died in his early forties. So we're seeing we're seeing his work from a time where he was he was still gestating. You know, this yeah. is not like a mature voice necessarily, which I think is really interesting because it's so audacious as an artistic statement and uh, it's it's you know it's very obviously very tragic that he passed away so early from um, cancer and it, it's also just sad in terms of what else was he going to write and in, in, if he had a long life like where would this go like would this would this continue and develop into like continually getting more strange and and raucous like I think about that sometimes also what would it sound like if this uh, if he's 70 now, you know, I, I, I feel you couldn't write this when you were 70. You probably wouldn't want to. And, and yeah, it is sad. I think about the same thing with, you know, even someone like, like Mozart. Um, what would, uh, what would old Mozart sound like? You know, I, I guess that's a boring thought, but but there you go. Um, <laughs> I mean, not necessarily. A lot of things changed in in society and musical values around the time he would have been that that age, and I think those things are worth considering. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of titans of modernism from mid twentieth century they they very much turned away from those styles as they got older. I'm thinking of people like Penderecki or or Ligeti. Um, who turned towards more neoclassical um, aesthetics, and so would somebody like Romatelli? Like, where? Yeah, where would he be now? Would he? Would he go? Would he want more of like a, a cream sound? <laughs> like, who knows? One could only one could only hope with one's whole whole body and soul. Uh, okay, here's a question. Uh, the, these, this piece is a sequel, isn't it? Lesson two. So I was wondering. If you were to write a sequel to one of your pieces, which one would it be? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I mean, selfishly, I would mostly want to write sequels to pieces whose instrumentation was was uh, the most flexible for my musical ideas and that was easy for me to sort of manipulate into sounds and worlds that I found really compelling. So earlier I mentioned that I, I find uh, purely acoustic sound worlds to be a little more challenging to um to have the level of bite and grit that i'm often looking for um so i i mean honestly it would probably be granitic um which is the piece that has the exact same instrumentation as as professor bad trip lesson two um it was a short piece which was just kind of the result of what my commissioning schedule was like at the time so i think it clocks in at about seven minutes and there's like a a guitar solo in it that's maybe about like two minutes long and I think that I would love to do a sequel that you know is maybe you know a 20 minute piece or a 15 minute piece but that is maybe more of like a concertante type format where like the guitar really does take more of like a, a more long form soloistic role um and I'd love to do more things with the synthesizer I found it really exciting uh yeah, it would it would have to be that. I mean, the the distance second runner up would be my my cello concerto, just because I love the concerto format, and uh, it was with live electronics. And there's, I think, again, there's more that I could do with that. And the cello is just, I I have an affinity for string instruments for sure, and uh, there's there's just more that I could do, would do, would like to do, you know. Forever dark two colon 
still dark. Colin, a little darker. <laughs> Whoa, you want it darker? It could be an ode to uh, Leonard Cohen. Uh... <laughs> that doesn't seem thematically appropriate. <laughs> Well, you know, <laughs> I, I'm not suggesting you're going to go, that's that's such a great title, James. I'm going to start working on that right now. Uh, this is not how my how my workflow works, unfortunately. <laughs> this idea that you could, like, receive uh, receive inspiration and just start a new piece. Oof, what, a, what a life that would be. I feel that's, that's my parents. Um, they have, so I do stand-up comedy, too. So they're often like, here's a comedy routine for you. And sometimes even my dad will come up to me and be like, why don't you write a piece that's like this? And... <laughs> it's really, tra- they're just trying to understand what you're doing. Like, I find it really charming. My grandmother wants me to, to set um, like a psalm for her. I am, I am an atheist and that idea is not super appealing to me. But this idea that like, this member of your family who doesn't um, really enjoy what you do would like to enjoy what you do in a way that appeals to them. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And you know what? Um, it, it's, it's understandable that they don't enjoy uh, it. I think, you know, if, if you said this is your grandmother. Yeah, that's my grandmother. If your grandmother was like a huge fan of your music, I think that would throw you into a bit of like an artistic crisis, right? <laughs> well, I guess it depends on like who your grandmother is. Like, if your grandmother was Yoko Ono, then maybe that would be like a badge of pride. Sure, I, I guess that's true. Maybe you just have a really cool grandmother. Um, well, to be to be fair, um, you know, I I don't come from. I know a lot of people, composers especially, they come from these like musical families or had um, had access to classical music and exposure to classical music really really young my family is is not that um so they don't have any bias against certain eras or aesthetics of classical music and my mom probably is the member of my family that goes to the most of my concerts uh you know when she can she lives in um newfoundland so there are sort of less performances of my music there than in other parts of the country uh she like she'll listen to a program and her favorite pieces will always be the new music pieces it might not necessarily be mine but it she won't like you know occasionally i'll be played at the tuckamore festival which has a lot of classical era and romantic era pieces on on programs and she'll be like yeah I it was just a little boring for me like i definitely prefer the newer stuff and to me like that's that's exciting because i think a lot of times we're told that uh this is such a niche thing that like the only people that are interested are, are people that who have training or education in it and it's it's just not true like if just like, give your audience a little bit of credit to be open and you know Reactions like that shouldn't be so surprising as they are. Totally. I, I think the problem is is that so often we're put in this context where people are coming for Beethoven. Uh, and then they listen to our stuff and they're like, well, this this is not really has anything to do with the genre of music that, that I'm here for. And to a certain point, they're, they're right, you know? Uh, and I think that there is that audience disconnect where, where our, it's not necessarily true that contemporary music is less approachable than like a, I don't know, a Brahms piano concerto? God, no. But I think <laughs> that we're often put in a context where we're not the music that people came there 
to hear. But that doesn't necessarily mean that to a wider audience their music is less accessible. It may, in fact, be, be more accessible, as you say. Yeah, I had an interesting experience recently. Like, by and large, my, my music is featured on concerts where everything is is new or new-ish. And in fact, a lot of the times my music is featured on concerts where every piece is a world premiere, um, which is kind of a, a young composer staple. Um, but I had a, a piece commissioned by the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra, and you know my, my concert mates, my program mates, were Mahler and Schubert, which was like, it felt a little bizarre to me. I, and I was actually considering like the context of, of what I did versus what they did when I was writing the piece. And I actually found like that rumination, that consideration to be like a little bit inspiring because I think in terms of like what drives us to create is, is not so different. And yeah, I, I kind of like came into this place where, you know, I'm not a big fan of classical era, romantic era music. And I like liked it a little better after mm. like kind of thinking and considering those things deep more deeply. Do you have a favorite classical or romantic era symphony? Hmm. I don't think I do, to be honest. Nowadays. Uh, okay, so I gotta ask you: uh, Do you have any final thoughts on our uh, friend Professor Bad Trip that you would like to share? Yeah, I think this this piece is sort of um, it still sounds at least to my ear, and I'm you know I'm beginning to not to be fresh myself, but this piece still sounds fresh to me, uh, and I think it's like a really great work to as a, as an introduction to what contemporary composition can be. Um, it's, I don't think anyone in this COVID era right now is is fresh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i haven't been outside in a while um but but you know what i mean it's it's hard to you know it's hard to describe uh, or, or know what yeah. sounds fresh anymore because you know i'm not listening to like sort of what's new and emerging necessarily i don't have access to those channels the same way that i might have had if i was still in school um but i know that if i heard this piece 10 years ago which i, I didn't because i didn't hear this until like my master's degree I think I would just be real a lot more excited about the possibilities of what can be under this umbrella of concert music or what can be um what can be like sort of sloughed off from the iceberg that is contemporary classical music. It doesn't need to sound classical. It can you can use the same tools, you can use the notation, you can use some of the instruments, but you can, you know, leave everything else. Like this sort of like take it and leave it approach I think is really sort of liberating as as specific as the notation is as a piece of sound when you don't have the score in front of you i just think this is like it's like a hype piece and i think it should be used not should, it could be used effectively for you know younger musicians who want to get into composition or people who are just kind of eclectic listeners who might actually be interested in all this stuff but don't know it yet i think this is like sort of a perfect piece to show them and be like this is what can happen yeah, for sure. And I think that this piece, we, you and I were talking a little while ago about what is and is not cool in the world <laughs> of contemporary music, which is already a very unfresh framework, probably. But Oh, it's extremely I, uncool to even discuss it. But I think this, I think this, this is cool. This is, this is fucking cool stuff. I mean, that's, that's it. Um, as a caveat, I will say that this is from an era where, like, 
actually it's not even from an era but like i when i think of of cool and the way that cool ages i think of you know when i was 20 and i dated a 30 year old who was the gen xer and he wore like a leather jacket and had his hair slicked back and had these like ray-bans and instead of looking cool which i'm sure looked cool when he was like 15 he looked like a vampire from buffy the vampire slayer where you, you can identify who's a vampire because their style is really outdated yeah. But they have all the confidence and swagger of that being like a cool aesthetic. I guess I just see that in my future. Like I can just see myself like like showing this piece to a class a classroom full of students and being like this is cool and just having everybody kind of cringe a little bit, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, what what can only one can only hope, you know. You don't want to stay on the pulse. Staying on the pulse is, is a burden. Uh Ah, that's a, yeah. I mean, there's no denying that, but it's, it's a burden that some people would like to carry, I think. Yeah. Okay, well, on that note, we're going to move to the, the, the final section of this podcast, which I've taken to calling uh, Unsound Choices, where we uh, recommend something. <laughs> i got going to have a little jingle there. Uh, unsound Choices, uh, where we just recommend something that we like. Maybe it's giving us creative uh, juice or maybe we're just uh, enjoying it so uh, Becca what you, what you got um, I mean I, I actually compiled like a little list of things that I'm liking because you know we're all we're all socially distancing and self-isolating so I've just been like consuming a lot so can I like sort of rattle off a list or would you prefer me recommend just one or two things uh, you, you can do the list why not let's hear let's hear your curated list <laughs> uh, well, I've got a little a little bit of um, popular music, a little bit of concert music. Um, I'll start with the concert music. Some of these come um, care of Clara Yanada. She's my teacher in Berlin, who I'm currently still studying with uh, by distance now. Uh, so for concert music, there's the work Karst, K-A-R-S-T, by Timothy McCormack, which is really heavy shit. And heavy acoustically, too, which is hard to do. Uh, and or by Anthony Tan, which like has this fascinating combination of like mechanical, but also this strange sense of popular music sensibilities. I, I, it's hard to describe. Uh, and Untitled Three-Part Construction by Michelle Liu, which is just a very, very strange piece of chamber music that is repetitive in a way that's almost minimal, but the noises that are used are strange enough that you, you kind of lose any sense of minimal um, uh, um, influence. Mm. And then for the popular music side of things, uh, some of these are, are old. They're not they're not new releases or anything, but they're things that I've been I've been spinning. So the album Telephone by No Name is phenomenal she's yeah. a rapper hip-hop artist based in the states uh, pink moon there. but oh yeah you're into that album yeah it's it's wonderful um i i put it on while i was uh covid grocery shopping and it kind of helped me calm down a little bit in such a pretty anxious space um pink moon by nick drake absolute solid thing that i've not stopped spinning for 10 years i would say I love it. Um, I, I still can't get over the way the piano just appears in that first song. Nowhere else on the album. Just leaves this <laughs> mysterious aura over the whole thing for me. Well, well, he was lucky because um, some of the albums were overproduced by sort of uh, the label's insistence and have like really kind of 
overdone arrangements and, and pink moon is is a lot is a lot nicer so i think it's like truer to nick drake's vision as a singer songwriter oh it's a beautiful album it's absolutely beautiful um on the other side of things hidden history of the human race by blood incantation fantastic death metal album probably mm. the best death metal album from the past five years maybe even 10 years um self-titled ep from parcels which is their super easygoing berlin-based kind of funk band they're, they're they sound kind of like daft punk um but they're making new music frequently Ooh. so if, if you if you're waiting for your daft punk fix and not getting it go to parcels and just two more uh i need to start a garden by Haley hendrix which is a beautiful piece of um it's like a folk folk album i would say and then another old time classic favorite but great for these for these terrible times the chet baker quartet's no problem cool thank you uh so i've got two things here both inspired by professor bad trip uh first is the movie uh climax uh this is a horror movie by gaspar noe about a group of french uh dancers uh who uh isolate themselves to come up with some uh, uh, dance choreography. Somebody spikes the punch with acid and they all go crazy and kill each other. Now, uh, this movie is, of course, uh, much like much of Gaspar Noé's work, uh, very, very intense. So if, if the term extreme horror makes you sad, don't watch this movie. But the <laughs> thing about it is, is it opens with these two long extended dance scenes that are some of the most ecstatic, positive, uh, energetic filmmaking I've, I've ever seen. It, it's, it's wonderful stuff. And, and the way that the ground and these dancers are, it's, it's such, such realist sort of mise-en-scene for lack of a, a less pretentious word. Um, like the ground <laughs> is so covered in grit and, and everything is all mucked up, but then the camera moves in just that strange, dreamy, circular, minimal, but yet sort of fluidly repetitive way of Gaspar Noe has that, that you get in this dream between the, the surreal and the real and, and the soundtrack is great and then once everything goes to shit it it hits all the harder because you you really you know you go from heaven to hell in it and also he does these crazy things with form about an hour into the movie i i don't want to spoil it but i don't really think i can the credits start to roll and um the names of all the bands and the the dj producers that that are in the movie start to flash up in the screen in sort of hyper stylized ways and then you kind of get into the post movie where which is where the real horror starts and, and i think a lot of that sort of form stuff maybe has has a lot to do with with what romatelli's up to the other is a popular music uh recommendation i want to recommend um double cup by dj rashid now, uh, I only became recently aware of this album because it popped up on some best of the decade list. And it's part of a subgenre of music that I wasn't aware of that I believe is called footwork. But it's, it's sort of vaguely 
something like like hip hop, uh, very carefully produced, just these incredibly intense detailed sound worlds based on repetition, but they have these shapes, these forms to them that that are incredibly dense. And and the more you listen to the album, sort of the more layers of shaping and form come on top of it. And the other great thing about the album is is a lot of the lyrics are about doing drugs, but in this weird way, because generally in, in music of, of hip hop or psychedelia, doing drugs is always connected to something like value, crime, maybe opening your mind up. Uh, I'll, I'll drop a sample of it here, but it's... They just repeat sort of uh, phrases like uh, light it up just over and over again. So you're left with this almost strange meditative thing where the, the act of doing drugs is removed from all social context and, and it creates this fascinating album. So that's my, those are my two, there's a bad trip and a good trip. Decide which recommendation is right for you. You know, based on how um, thematically appropriate your recommendations are, I'm just going to throw one more into the ring. Is that okay? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, from the film side of things, I, I absolutely have to recommend Mandy. Yeah. Starring Nicolas Cage. Uh, directed by Panos Cosmatos and scored by the late Johan Johansson. Mm. I think it was the last the last film that he did before he died. And if you're looking for a trippy a trippy fucking movie, like this is it's the way to go. It's just like visually, the direction, this the sound, the music, it's just phenomenal. And I think um when you mentioned time and this this um sort of manipulation and malleability it, of the sense of time within a film I think that's so important to what we end up perceiving as psychedelic like that's sort of one of the key tenets of it and I think Mandy does it really well too awesome okay well very nice talking to you Becca I'm gonna turn off um, the recording now but it's been a pleasure having you on pleasure catching up during these very strange times and, uh, let's, let's, let's do it again sometime uh, on the next This brings us to the end of uh, this first episode of On Sound, On Sound. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Next week, uh, we'll be talking to James O'Callaghan about Sabrina Schroeder's Under Room. Uh, and uh, if you like our podcast, please, uh, please, uh, I don't know, tell your mom. Tell your, uh, tell your mom. Tell your so, dad. Tell I don't your, know. Tell your mom. Tell your dad. We want to thank the Ontario region of the Canadian Music Centre for supporting Unsound on Sound as part of their media production residency. You can follow the CMC on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit cmccanada.org for info. For info. info. You can also follow us, Unsound on Sound, on our, our Facebook page that I just made the other day. 
just search it on the on the Facebook bar. You can figure it out. For one final note, uh, during the, uh, the discussion, Becca mentioned that the Ictus Ensemble is French. That is wrong. They are from Belgium. Okay, thank you, everyone, and have a good night.